Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, your weekly science fix. Get ready to sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science into your day. I'm Emily Fern. On this edition we'll feature sex, Vegemite and ice skating. An odd mix I know, but hey, we don't make the science, we just report it. But up first, here's the news with Erin Passmore. <laughs> A new study shows that smoking continues to damage your lungs even after you quit smoking. The findings come from an international team of researchers in respiratory medicine, including Dr Felix Ram of Massey University. Until now, it has been widely thought that lung damage ceases when you stop smoking. The new study is the first to show that once smokers have the bronchial inflammation caused by smoking, it will continue even after they quit. The study was conducted with patients in various hospitals in Britain. There were 65 current smokers and 36 former smokers, aged between 60 and 65 years, who had been or still were smoking a pack a day. The participants had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, a smoking-related disease that causes bronchial inflammation. The researchers say their results showed no statistically significant differences between smokers and ex-smokers in the number of inflammatory cells and other markers of lung inflammation. But that doesn't mean there's no point quitting smoking. Even though the lung inflammatory damage will continue, smoking has other health effects, so smokers will still benefit from giving up. What seems to be more important is to not start smoking in the first place. New Scientist reports that researchers have explained the secret behind geckos' amazing ability to climb walls. Geckos get their adhesive ability from sticky hairs that cover their toes. Conventional adhesives either stick weakly and detach with ease, like post-it notes, or a super sticky but hard to remove, like duct tape. But gecko hairs have a unique quick-release mechanism that allows them to both adhere strongly and detach easily. Researchers at Lewis and Clark College in Oregon measured the force required to detach hairs from a surface and whether the hairs stuck better at different angles. When the force causes the hairs to lie at an angle of about 30 degrees to the horizontal, they can resist enormous forces. One of the gecko studies could resist the weight of 130 kilos. But at angles of over 90 degrees, the hairs detach easily. And because the hairs are solid structures, they don't get damaged and lose their stickiness. Researchers in the US say that the mechanism could be used to make glues or even car braking systems. So far, synthetic gecko feet have been made to hold small robots. But researchers say they are still a long way from being able to use this material in cars, or what I would especially love, sticky boots for climbing up walls. Researchers at McMaster University have found that plants can recognise their siblings. The study appears in biology letters. Plants compete for resources when sharing their pot with strangers of the same species. They start growing more roots, which allow them to grab water and mineral nutrients before their neighbours get them. But when they share a pot with family, that is, other plants with the same mother, they don't increase their root growth. This ability to recognise kin is common in animals, but has never been shown in plants. 
Though they lack cognition and memory, this study shows that plants are capable of complex social behaviours. This behaviour was observed in sea rocket, a species native to beaches in North America. The study confirms what gardeners have known for a long time. Some pairs of plants just get along better than others. And finally, we all know that when it gets really cold, it hurts. Whether it's staying out on a winter's day or holding an ice cube in your hand, those cold sensations are definitely unpleasant. But now researchers have identified a protein behind that painful response to cold. The protein is called Na1.8. We already knew that this protein was associated with pain in response to nerve damage. But now it looks like the same protein gets involved when the temperature plummets. Physiologists at the University of Erlangen-Nuremberg in Germany studied mice who were engineered to lack the Na1.8 protein. The mice were placed on a plate chilled to zero degrees Celsius. Normal mice on the chilled plate hop around and lift their feet to avoid the cold. But mice without Na1.8 don't hop around at all. The results are published this week in Nature. These findings tell us a bit about how we sense temperature. Other researchers have identified a protein that responds to moderately cold temperatures. But it seems that when the temperature gets cold enough to be painful, Na1.8 becomes a key player. Neurobiologist David McKemmy at the University of Southern California suggests Na1.8 is probably involved in signalling other sensory experiences, like heat or pressure, but it's still unclear whether the protein directly responds to cold or is just transmitting a signal from another receptor. Thanks, Erin. It's good to be up to date. I think I'll just be that little bit nicer to my pot plants this week. Next up, we have Tisha Dejmani with a titillating talk on the truth about orgasms. If our society wasn't already neurotic enough about sex, a team of Dutch researchers has managed to lend scientific weight to this obsession by conducting a number of experiments on orgasms and the brain. Professor Gert Holstedge and colleagues at the University of Groningen have used PET scans to observe how the brain responds to sexual stimulation and orgasm. Thirteen women volunteered to lie with their heads in a brain scanner while their partners sat outside and used some creative handwork to stimulate them to orgasm. The Dutch scientists helpfully set the scene by turning off all the lights and making the room silent. Researchers then tracked brain activity through four states – rest, sexual stimulation, orgasm and fake orgasm. The neuroscientists found that parts of the brain which deactivated when their subjects were stimulated were the amygdala and hippocampus, areas which control anxiety and alertness. At the actual point of orgasm, further areas of the brain shut down, including the prefrontal cortex, which regulates conscious thought and action, suggesting that all body movements during orgasm are unconscious and involuntary. As Professor Holsteg claims, at the point of orgasm, a woman has no emotional feelings. This is in contrast to brain patterns when women faked orgasm, where scans revealed that the motor cortex, which controls movement and consciousness, was activated. 
Now, as you might imagine, being given a handjob in a dark, quiet lab with your head contained in a large magnetic container while you know a pack of scientists are monitoring every neuron which fires in your brain is a lot of pressure to deal with, particularly when we now have proof that orgasm is a difficult state to achieve when anxious. In fact, a number of male volunteers who participated in counterpart experiments were unable to orgasm under these conditions. Professor Holsteg speculated that his female counterparts may try to fake orgasms should they be unable to climax, and after using expensive PET machines to put all performance anxieties to rest, helpfully concluded that women can imitate orgasm quite well. Professor Holsteg and his team initially conducted experiments whose focus was the response of the male brain to ejaculation. These experiments were carried out in much the same way as above. The volunteers placed their head in a PET machine while their partners manually stimulated them to ejaculation. Now, if you're wondering, the reason why volunteers were stimulated was because the PET required that the volunteers remain still or the areas of the brain which control their hand and arm movement would also have been activated. The researchers then tracked brain activity during rest, erection, sexual stimulation and orgasm. Their findings were that during male orgasm, the most activated brain region was the cerebellum, an area which responds to touch and emotion. As with women, deactivation occurred in the amygdala. This combination created brain patterns similar to those experienced during the euphoric rush associated with heroin use. This explains anecdotal evidence that regular heroin users lose their libido as this region is already being overstimulated. And finally, just because the quest for scientific knowledge clearly knows not enough bounds, similar experiments conducted on rats and monkeys allow us to categorically state that men do indeed have a neurological response to ejaculation, which more closely approximates primates rather than rats. Professor Holsteg might claim that, unlike women, science never fakes it. However, these kinky experiments do have an awful lot of technical inaccuracies which should lead us to seriously doubt the validity of these results. Firstly, whether the lights are on or off, it's hard to believe that many people naturally have the opportunity to have sex in a PET scanner, and so applying these results to our bedrooms might be a little misguided. This is closely related to the second issue one might have with these experiments. How many people are actually willing to orgasm in the name of science? In fact, only 13 women participated in the first experiment, while only 11 men participated in the ejaculation experiment. It seems clear that drawing broad conclusions of the population from this tiny sample size might in fact be slightly premature. Finally, PET is still an inaccurate technology which is unable to capture precise movement within minute areas of the brain. Focusing scientific research on the nature of orgasm unhelpfully limits the boundaries of sexuality for men and women. Disturbingly, the aim of Professor Holsteg's experiment was the ability to improve sexual function and satisfaction while claiming that sexual dysfunction, that is, an inability to consistently orgasm during sex, was widespread and problematic. This particularly black and white view of sex, where good sex equals orgasms and men are responsible for pleasuring women, seems to provide many clues as to why women might be faking orgasms in the first place. What might be useful, then, is not drawing inferences from blurry magnetic images of the brain, but rather teaching women and men how to negotiate sexual encounters rather than blindly replicate the sex portrayed in movies and on the internet. Although Professor Holsteg's brain research might indeed tell us that there is a connection between cognition and sex, all his research has been able to confirm so far is that it is difficult to orgasm when you have a lot of fear and anxiety, and that fake orgasms are different to real orgasms. My cognitive response is, so what? If we truly want to explore our sexuality, learning how to communicate and experiment might actually be more useful than lining up people to repeatedly orgasm slash fake orgasm inside a PET machine. But hey, whatever does it for you. Well, I don't know about you, but that certainly piqued my interest. <laughs> Thank you, Tisha.
science, 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 science is golden. Science, science, science is golden. Science, science, science is golden. Science, Local girl Celine Steinfeld and Jeff Heaton, all the way from Canada, are here to tell us all about the science of ice skating. In Canada, we get pretty excited about ice hockey, but in fact, hockey involves skating, which involves science. Well, how complicated can it be? Skates glide across the ice because it's slippery, right? Well, you're half right, but it's in the details where it gets interesting. In the past, scientists believed that skates created pressure or friction, which melted the ice. Creating a thin layer of water on which the skates could glide. Ah,、uh, that makes sense to me because I slipped the other day on the bathtub. Same kind of science. Ah,、uh, more or less. It's true that a thin layer of water is slippery on ice as well as in the shower. But scientists have recently shown that skates and pucks do not generate enough pressure to instantly liquefy ice. So what makes ice slippery then? Well, it turns out that ice actually has a quasi-fluid layer that coats its surface and makes it slippery. This surface layer behaves somewhat like a liquid. It consists of rapidly vibrating molecules, but these molecules only move up and down. They don't move from side to side on the surface of the ice. If the atoms did move from side to side, the liquid-like layer would in fact be liquid. So, say in Canada, if it gets really, really cold, can this liquid layer freeze? Well, not at temperatures we see in Canada. The、uh, water-like layer may be thicker or thinner depending on the temperature, though. At about minus 157 Celsius, which is colder than the average winter day, the ice has a slippery layer one molecule thick. As the ice is warmed, the number of these slippery layers increases. Okay, so not all ice is the same then. So, what's the fastest ice for skating? Well, the conventional wisdom is that the colder ice is harder and therefore faster. Fewer of these water-like layers to slosh through, I suppose. For ice hockey, the ice is usually kept at around negative nine degrees Celsius, cold enough for a fast game, but not so cold that the spectators and players freeze. Figure skaters like softer ice for deeper cuts and softer landings. And prefer ice roughly at minus five degrees Celsius. Also, they wear skimpier outfits than hockey players, so warmer is better. And just to keep you on your toes, now that Jeff has shed some light on the sciences of Canada, it's time for a little Australiana. Celine's going to tell us about the starry southern sky and our favourite spreadable yeast. Tourists in Canada have it easy. The North Star equals north. Well, celestial north, that is. If you get lost in the city, all you need to do is look up and find that strategically placed north star. Down under, though, there are no stellar cheat sheets that point simply to the position of celestial south. So I spoke to an astrophysicist, Henry Woodruff, from the Sydney Observatory, to help poor Jeff, our lost damsel in distress, use the Southern Cross to locate his way around Sydney. He explained to me how to find south in the following way. Step one. 
Draw an imaginary line through the longest axis of the cross. Extend this line down. Step 2. Locate the pointer stars Alpha Centauri and Beta Centauri and draw a line between these two stars. Then extend a midpoint perpendicular towards your right. Step 3. Where these two lines meet is the celestial south pole. All the stars in the southern sky rotate around this point. But wait, this is not the real south pole on Earth. If you draw a vertical line from the celestial pole down to Earth, you will hit the south pole, hopefully somewhere in Antarctica. Yes, it's a bit confusing to explain, but thank goodness for you Canadians, we've invented compasses to help you navigate your way around town. The Aussie flag is not the only flag to bear the Southern Cross. It appears on the flag of Brazil, New Zealand and Papua New Guinea too. On the Aussie flag, the Southern Cross looks flat, but Gamma, the closest star in the Southern Cross, is 88 light years away. Delta is a whole 364 light years away. So really, all these stars are positioned along an imaginary line running 3.5 quadrillion kilometres away from Earth but they're all positioned slightly off-centre. Thank goodness our Aussie flag is not three-dimensional because we'd probably run out of cotton. Just guess 
Now, for the chemistry of Vegemite, poor Jeff had a ghastly encounter of the third kind this morning at breakfast. He mistook the dark brown salty yeast extract spread, known to Aussies as Vegemite, for that sweet-tasting chocolatey hazelnut spread, known to Italians as Nutella. After a bout of coughing and spluttering, he finally managed to ask me the question, what is this stuff? I wish I had this answer to give to him. Vegemite is made from leftover brewer's yeast, a byproduct of beer brewing, and various vegetable and spice additives. The taste may be described as salty, slightly sweet, with a bitter aftertaste, and malty. Per 100 grams, Vegemite contains 811 kilojoules of energy, carbohydrates, a total of 19.5 grams, and 25.6 grams of protein. It's interesting to see that Vegemite has less than one gram of fat. Sodium, however, there are 3,380 milligrams of sodium. A jar of Vegemite will outlive any human being on the planet due to its high salt content. This is illustrated particularly when Australian people go through kitchen cupboards that haven't been cleaned for five years and often the only thing worth keeping are several jars of Vegemite at various stages of age. The best food for astronauts is a multicoloured cousin to Vegemite, according to a NASA space food competition. The vegetable spread, called Veg at Ease, is a red, white and green mix of tomatoes, carrots, potatoes, sweet potatoes and radishes. It was created by U.S. students from Penn State University who won the 2004's NASA Food Technology Commercial Space Center's competition. The judges looked at whether foods in the competition were easy to prepare, safe to eat, had few crumbs, and tasted good. But tastes vary. Dr. John Clark, director of the Mars Society in Australia, a group of scientists dedicated to Mars exploration, said that not everyone liked Australia's answer to the prize-winning spread, Vegemite and recent space research proved it, just as well as Jeff did this morning. And that's all from us today in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild, passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2ser.com or subscribe to our podcast on www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the fantastic program today were Celine Steinfeld, Jeff Heaton, Erin Parsmore, Tisha Desmani, and last but not least, we had the brilliant behind-the-scenes star, Ed Pollitt. The magic you witnessed today was produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Emily Fern. Join us inside the audio device of your choice for more fantastic science facts next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Yeah, uh, I am a scientist.